Good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. Um, we are today starting a new series. It's called Different by Design, as John said. And uh, to give you a little bit more detail into that, we're really going to be diving into, uh, one, that there is a designer. He did give us a design to follow, uh, an intent for uh, what the world was to look like. Um, we're also going to talk about what it looks like in God's design for uh, men, for women, for families, all of these different things in this series. It's kind of a continuation of the culture series. Because uh, what we will see as we go through this is that culture is really uh, or has redefined all of these things. And so what we want to do is look at what God intended and what God designed um, the world and his people to look like. And so we're going to do that today um, by turning to the very beginning of the Bible. In fact, we're going to read the first five words of the Bible, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll get into the message. And so Genesis chapter 1, the good thing about that is it's easy for everybody to find, right? You're not scrambling in your Bible like, where is it? Just go to the first page, right? Uh, Genesis chapter 1, and these are the first five words of the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for giving us truth, Lord, that we can hold, that we can see, that we can know. Lord, I pray that today you would move mightily in our hearts through the power of your spirit. God, you would teach and rebuke, correct and train, Lord, encourage, embolden, that we can be the people you've called us to be. I pray, Lord, for a greater revelation of who you are, and God, that through that revelation, we would worship you, that that would be seen through our lives, Lord, that we become living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. This would be our reasonable act of service and worship to you, Father. We love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So how many of you would say that in life you are maybe more on the naive side? Any people who just say, I'm kind of naive. I'll believe a lot of anything. I give people a hundred different chances, and they may lie to me or they may not, but I, I, I just tend to believe what they say. Any naive people in here? It's okay. You can be naive. Um, how about people who you're probably, we'll, we'll just kindly call it more shrewd, right? A little more shrewd, a little more questioning, a little less trusting, right? Any of those people in here? And that's me. I'm, I'm that one right there. And I can remember though, um, for a long time in my life, I was not like that. But I remember when I was about, I think I was 33 years old, I can remember exactly when and where this happened. Um, I was coming down Lakeview, um, passing the landfill. So if you know where the landfill is, I'm coming into town, down Lakeview, passing the landfill. And in that moment, it just, this realization came into my mind. And that is this, this, that some people will look you in the eyes and think about how can I manipulate this person? They can look you in the eyes and not tell you the truth. And, and for 33 years, I just kind of gone with the flow. You know, I remember getting into the construction business and thinking if I treat them good, they'll treat me good. That don't work. And, and I started coming to this realization. And here's the thing for most of us is that if someone 
does something where they lie to us, they betray us, it casts a shadow over everything else that they would say or do. Trust is quickly broken, but it takes a long time to build it. And when somebody may lie, somebody may, may, may do something that feels like betrayal, what ends up happening is it casts a shadow over the next thing they say or the next thing they do. We begin to wonder, can I trust them? Can I trust that? Is their intent good? And I use that example to say this. I don't believe that it is an accident that the question of God's existence is so challenged by culture. I don't think it's a coincidence that, that, that in schools, it has been such a challenge to, to just deny the existence of God, to teach evolution, to teach all these things that, that don't coincide with God creating. I don't think it's an accident. And here's why I don't think it's an accident. I think it is the tool of the enemy because if you look at the first five words of scripture, it says, in the beginning, God created. If I can make you doubt the first five words in the Bible, what does it do to the rest of the Bible? If I can cast a shadow of doubt with the first five words of scripture, and I read that and it says, in the beginning, God created, and there's this whisper in our ear that said, did he really? And we look at this and it's this all out attack and it's not something that is uh, accidental, it's intentional. The enemy knows if he can get you to doubt the very beginning, then everything else becomes a question. Can I really trust this? Is it really true? And I begin to doubt and I begin to wonder, is everything else true? Is any of it true? Paul though, in the book of Romans, if you go to the New Testament, the apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome says this in Romans chapter one, verse 18. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God, listen, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Paul says, if you just look around at creation, he says, you can see that there is a God, that there is a divine power, an eternal power that has made this and holds this all together. He says, just look around, just look at the stars. He says that the fact that there is a created order points to the fact that there is a creator. See, the, the, the created order tells us that someone put it in order. Even in our own lives, the, the, the trend or the tendency is not for things to stay in order. Like when I got here this morning, the stage, it had to be put in order. Rachel and Wesley, all that, they put the stage in order. It didn't just happen on its own. How about in your house? If someone's not intentional to keep it in order, what's it end up looking like? Clothes everywhere, dishes in the sink, all kinds of stuff, right? Someone has to make an intentional choice 
to maintain order. And this is what God does. The fact that there is a created order tells us that there is a creator who put it in order and holds it together. It's what Colossians 1.17 says. It says all things were created by him and for him and through him all things hold together. We can look at around us and just the fact that there is a creation tells us there must be a creator. Isn't that obvious? Just the fact that there is a design to the world, to your body, to our lives, it tells us that there is a designer. Isn't that kind of obvious? But what culture has done is culture has caused us to question the obvious and accept the questionable. To question the obvious. If there is a keyboard right here, somebody made it. There wasn't an explosion that caused it. If there is a creation, there is a creator. But the reality is culture has caused us to question the obvious and accept the questionable. And when we look at this, we see Paul is clearly telling us, you need to realize that you can look at creation and know that God exist, that there is a designer. But see, here's what happens. If, if we get to this place where we can say that there is no designer, then we can say this, and listen, if there is no designer, then there is no design. If there is no design, there is no standard. If there is no standard, there is no right or wrong. And if there is no right or wrong, I can do whatever I want whenever I want to and there's no consequences. If there is no designer, there is no design. If there is no design, there is no standard. If there is no standard, there is no right or wrong. And if there is no right or wrong, then I can do whatever I wanna do whenever I wanna do it. And to be honest, that is the heart of man from the beginning. The heart of man from the beginning is to do what I wanna do when I wanna do it. It is a rejection of God's order it is a rejection of his design, and it is a rejection of God himself. And every single one of us are guilty. Look at Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. If you can find Isaiah, you keep going to the right, you'll find Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 and 10. It says, the heart is deceitful, in verse nine, above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. When you look at this and you think about this, he, he's saying, listen, the heart of man is deceitful. He says, above all things, above everything else, at the root of it all, above all things, the heart is deceitful. He says it's beyond cure. In other words, you can't do anything about it. It's just the nature of man since the fall. He says you can't do anything about it. He says it's beyond cure. He says who can understand it? 
Who can understand why we do the things we do, why we act the way we act? He says, we can't even really understand it, but there's this innate brokenness inside of all of us. And, and he goes on in verse 10, and he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. Now, understand that the word for Hebrew in this, when he says heart, it's not just a word that can mean your physical heart. What it means is your inner being. It means your mind. It means your will. It means your, um, your understanding. And so he says, your heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure. What's he telling us about ourselves? He's saying your heart, your inner being is broken. He's saying, listen, you, you and your inner being, you can desire to live out God's design, but you can't do it. He says, in your inner being, in your mind, you may plan to live out God's design, but you don't have the strength to pull it off. He says, in your will, in your will, he says, in, in your will, you may determine to pull, pull off God's design, to live in God's design. He says, but you don't have the ability. He says, in your understanding, you can know the decrees of God. You can agree with the decrees of God. But in your own ability, you cannot live that way. We see the Apostle Paul wrestle with this in Romans 7. He says, even when I want to do right, he, he's like, sin is there just waiting on me. And every single person in this room can attest to this fact that even when we want to do good, we can't live that out perfectly. And Jeremiah tells us the reason, because our hearts are deceitful above all things. Here's something that's even scarier than that. He tells us that God searches the heart. He examines the mind. He's saying that the God who designed it all and holds it all together, he looks inside of you and he sees your inward man, your inward being. He sees the desires that are inside of you. He says he looks into your mind. He knows the thoughts you have. He knows the thoughts that I have. He searches the mind. It says he searches the will. He knows the things that we've determined to do. He knows what our will is, what our true desires are. He searches our understanding, how we think about him and even the things we know about him that we disregard. He says he searches these things. And if that's not enough, he goes on and says this, that God will reward each person according to their conduct. Not only does he see it, not only does he realize what's in us, but it says, I will reward you according to your conduct. Does that make anybody else shudder just a little bit? that the God of the universe sees and knows my inward being. And he's gonna reward that for what I've done. If you go back over to the book of Romans and you look at this, 
Romans chapter 1 again. Paul, after stating that we are without excuse for not recognizing the fact that God exists, that he is divine, he has eternal power, a divine nature. He says, you are without excuse. He says this, and this, is, this, is, this paints a pretty bleak picture of our state. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor give thanks, gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And I want you to listen to the exchanges that it says happens in Romans chapter one. It says, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And then I want you to notice the next word, therefore, because they exchanged God's glory for the creation he says, therefore, and every time there's an exchange, there's, an, there's a consequence. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, because of the exchange of the truth for a lie, God gave them over again to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, and this is a huge word, do not miss this part. And ESV says it a little bit different, but, but here's the reality. It says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So there's another exchange, the knowledge of God. So he gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways, they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know the righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death. Not only do they continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. He paints this really, really bleak picture for humanity of our condition, of our state. And he talks about how the wrath of God is being revealed. And this whole section of scripture is about how humanity has exchanged God's intent, his design, his order for something else. He's saying you've exchanged everything that's good for things that are not good. And he comes to this, and before you start running off with your thoughts or your opinions, I want you to hear my heart and hear me out in this. 
he comes to this point where he's talking about how the women have exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Men have abandoned natural relations with women. When he says natural, he means the created order. When he says unnatural, he means it's outside of the created order. Natural meaning God's design. Unnatural meaning outside of God's design. And here's the thing I want you to understand about this passage. Paul does single out homosexuality, yes, but he does not do so because this, the, the, the homosexuality is this greater sin. It's not Paul saying, look, one is good and one is gross. It's not Paul saying God hates gays. That is not what Paul is saying. The problem with the church talking about homosexuality is not the fact that we've talked about homosexuality, it's how we've talked about homosexuality. And when we look at this, he's saying, look, this is just, for Paul, this was an obvious deviation of the created order. And he uses this as an example. But then he goes on down and he says, furthermore, and I just wanna read these again, because I want you to see if you can find yourself in this passage. He says he gave them over to a depraved mind in verse 28, so that they do what ought not to be done, verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, any envious, jealous person, murder. Don't forget, Jesus said, hating is like murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips. Anybody gossip? Slanderers, God-haters, insolent. It means to have a rude or arrogant lack of respect, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Hello. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And what he's saying is, look, all of these things are outside of God's design. And he's saying, because our heart is deceitfully wicked, even when we come to Christ, he gives us this new heart, but there's still this flesh that we live in and it desires to pull us away. Those desires are in conflict with the desires that we have for God. And because of this, he's saying every single person has stepped outside of God's design for the world. Every single person. And he tells us that Later on in Romans chapter three, he says, no one's done good, not even one. He says, there's no one who's good. He says, there's no one who's righteous, not even one. He tells us that because of us stepping outside of God's design, that God's wrath is coming upon the earth. And yet we can go through our lives so flippant about the things in our lives that are outside of his design. And the whole while we can say we love God. We can come into worship and we can sing. We can go through every day of our life flippantly ignoring those things that we are doing blatantly that cause us to step outside of God's design. I want you to understand the issue with sin is not just morality. That's not the primary issue. The issue with sin is primarily rejection and rebellion against God. 
It is giving God the middle finger and saying, thanks for the suggestion, but I'll just do it my way. Say, thanks, God. I know you designed it. I know you created it. I know you hold it all together, but I'll do it the way I want to do it. And go in our own direction. He says in verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. See, here's the thing about sin. Sin is not an oops. You hear people say, well, you know, so-and-so fell into sin. Is it a pit? Like what? You're just walking along and you're like, whoa, I'm in sin. No. It might be a slow drift away from God, but understand this. Our sin is not because we don't know the decrees of God. It is something that is intentional, that we are pulled away. Bible says we can't even blame God. Don't even blame Satan. Satan didn't make you do it. You know what did? Your deceitful heart. And we see this bleak picture of humanity, what God created and what God intended, we so flippantly ignore. And yet we come to, to, to John chapter one. And I wanna encourage you to do this. If you want some reading for this week and some time to study and meditate on God's word, I would encourage you, go read Genesis chapter one and read alongside it, John chapter one because there are a lot of parallels. You will see a lot of things that, are, 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 that line up together. Because when John wrote John chapter one, in his mind, he was looking back to Genesis one and the creation. And when he's writing that, he writes this. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It says all things were created through him. Nothing was made that basically he didn't make. It says that though the earth again was dark and formless and void like it was when God began to speak and create. He says though now the, dark, the world is again dark and empty and void. He says there was a light and his name is Jesus and he came into the world and that light was the light of men. He goes on and he says, he came to his own, but guess what his own did again? They rejected him. He came to his own, but they didn't even recognize him. They rejected him. But what John is saying is that when Jesus was born and he stepped foot fully God and fully man onto the earth, he had one reason for existence and it was to live a perfect life and go to a cross where he would pay the price for our sin. All of that rejection and rebellion and giving God the middle finger, he said, guess what? I'm gonna pay the price for this. And he steps into the earth and he's the light of the world and he is life. And he comes to those who are his own and once again, they reject him. And there's a specific point that I wanna go to today. Because for how many of you does this feel pretty heavy? Anybody feel kind of heavy? 
Anybody kind of see, like, like we're pretty screwed up people, right? Like our heart is really messed, like we're broken. Every single person in this room right now is broken. And, and, and it's hard to even understand why Jesus would have come only to be rejected again. But look at Matthew chapter 23. This absolutely boggles my mind. Matthew chapter 23. Jesus has come in. He's, he's been into Jerusalem with that triumphal entry um, where everybody's crying, Hosanna, save us. But those same people who were crying, Hosanna, save us, acknowledging him as the Messiah, he knows later those people are gonna yell, crucify him. He knows that those same people are gonna ask for a man by the name of Barabbas to be released, a murderer, instead of him. And that is symbolic of you and I. The one who was guilty was set free while the one who was innocent paid the price. That's what Jesus did for us. But he's once again about to experience the rejection of his creation. And listen to what he says, because I cannot fathom this. In verse 37 of Matthew 23, it says, as Jesus is coming back into Jerusalem, he looks over the city in verse 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. In other words, what he's speaking to is all the Israelite people, the Jewish people. And he's saying, all you people, all of you people who were chosen by God, who through the centuries have rejected God, you've rejected me. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Listen to this. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. He means the temple. He's saying the temple is in disarray and what y'all don't even know in about 35, 37 years, it's gonna be completely destroyed. He says, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what I can't fathom. I can't fathom the fact that through all of the rejection, through all of the thousands of years, of humanity rejecting God, that God would still send Jesus to this earth. I cannot fathom that when Jesus stepped foot on the planet, he is born, that he is still rejected by his creation. And yet he continues to Jerusalem. I cannot fathom that as he is going in, he knows that my crucifixion is near. I cannot fathom the fact that he stands looking over this city full of people who are gonna wanna put him on a cross. And he is standing there looking at it and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you to myself as a hen gathers her chicks. He's still wanting them to come to him. He said, how long, if you were only willing, I would draw you in, despite all your wickedness, despite you thumbing your nose at my design, despite you willingly rejecting me and going against me 
and we so flippantly go through our life thinking nothing of it because Jesus paid the price. Jesus paying the price shouldn't give us a feeling of, I can get away with anything. It should give us a heart of worship. And yet the God that we have spit upon, the God that we have laughed at and mocked, he still holds out his arms and said, I wish that you would come to me. What kind of love is that? Who loves like that? Who is rejected over and over and over again and yet still says, I love you. You have been unfaithful over and over and over again but I'm still here for you. Who does that? Jesus. Who can mend a broken heart? Jesus. Who can understand our heart? Jesus because he was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. One of the things, and this has been really heavy on me this week and really the last two or three weeks. One of the things that people will say to me a good bit is they'll say one of the things I really appreciate you, about you is your humility. And I'll say two things about that. One, if you say that, then unlike God, you don't really know my inner being. I know what's in my heart. I know what's there. I know the battles that rage inside of me. The other thing I'll tell you is that if there is any humility in me, it is because I know what I am. I know what I am and I can tell you this, I'm not a has-been, I'm much more of a never was. And if there is any humility in me, it's because I understand my own fallenness. I understand my imperfections, I see those. They weigh on me. I know, listen, I can't be perfect for you. I, I'm not a perfect pastor. I'm not a perfect leader. And don't think that's lost on me. I know I have my own issues. I know this, I'm not a perfect father. 
I know what I am. I know what's inside of me. I'm certainly not a perfect husband. Yet God gave me a wife who has stuck by me through thick and thin. I can't be perfect and I know that. I know what I am. But here's the other thing I'll tell you. I also know who Christ has made me. And in myself, I may be this. But in Christ, I'm the righteousness of God. And if you can see who you really are, and the darkness of your own heart, of your inner being, your mind, your will, your understanding. And you can step over here and you can see who you are in Christ. And if that doesn't humble you, then we haven't come to the full realization of what that really is. Because we exchanged everything good for what is not good. Jesus exchanged all of his goodness for everything that we messed up on. It's the greatest exchange ever. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And here's my prayer, here's my prayer. This is really on my heart right now. I know some of you looking at the ceiling, some of you laughing, giggling, whatever. Here's my challenge for you. The Bible says that the Lord searches our heart. Are you ignoring that? Because if you can walk out of here after hearing this and you pay no attention to where your heart is, there, we, need to, we need to deal with that. And that's what we're about to do. I asked Rachel at nine if she would sing, I need you Jesus again. I'll ask her to do the same thing now. My challenge for you is to let the Lord search your heart you make a declaration, Jesus, I need you. You can come up here and pray. Won't you come and let us pray for you? Won't you come and empty that at the altar? But at a minimum, right where you are, let the Lord search you and understand this, that with all of our faults and all of our flaws, Jesus still calls us to come to him. But don't take that lightly. It came at a great cost. So I'm gonna ask Rachel if she would sing and you respond as the Lord prompts you to respond. But don't walk out these doors like it doesn't matter.